The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. This, uh, this presentation um, is entitled, The Face of the Bridegroom, Source of Mystical Prayer. In this one, what I would like to do is look very particularly at the doctrine of prayer that we find in Teresa of Avila's Life, La Vida, and in John of the Cross's poem, The Spiritual Canticle. So that, that will be, that will be our, um, our, the two kind of poles for this. And what we're going to look at in this doctrine of prayer is, what does the role of the face of Christ pray, uh, play in their, the way they look at prayer? And by exploring this this morning, uh, I, of course, my intention is to invite you to do the same thing, to seek for the face of Christ like they did. And uh, so in, uh, let me begin with Teresa of Avila. Uh, in our, uh, our kind of in-between section, one of the things I did was I talked to you about, I told you a little bit about her conversion and the fact that she um, was praying, would go through periods of devotion and then get discouraged and stop praying. And part of what discouraged her in her acts of devotion was the fact that she would even though she was praying and she was living a disciplined life, she would fall back into sin, uh, some kind of attachment. Apparently there were friendships that um, she would get carried away with. We're not, uh, uh, they weren't uh, not carried away in the sense of, uh, I, I'm not so sure um, exactly that she did anything uh, what we would consider blatantly immoral, but it was something that disturbed her conscience. Uh, kinds of friendships that she had where she was driven not by the love of Jesus, but she was driven instead to impress people, to, to create an impression on them. One of these relationships, I think, um, uh, would be her relationship with her father. Her, her, in a relationship with her father, uh, she wanted to impress her father very much. Now, Teresa of Avila and her family were part of a, a movement in 16th century Spain to re, renew the church through mental prayer. And I mentioned in, earlier today that not all of Spain was, was into this. In fact, there was an inquisitor. His name was Melchor Cano. He was the greatest Spanish theologian of the 16th century. Uh, but his vision of contemplation I, I would have to say, was not consistent with the rest of the tradition. He posed that contemplation should only be done by those who, um, who were specially chosen by God and already uh, uh, morally advanced and particularly called to the contemplative life. For the rest of us, we weren't to spend time uh, uh, in silence before the Lord because we could get into trouble. We might do, we, we might um, get into error. Now, why did he believe that? What was driving him? Why did he think that? Well, this is what happened in the 16th century. I want to mess up the names a little bit because I, I um, should have brought my notes. But there, there were a group of women who discovered mystical prayer at the end of the, of the 15th century. All right? And um, uh, so 
they, uh, they were called the Beatas, the Beatas. And these women would spend hours and hours in prayer. But unfortunately, what was going on in Spain at that time? 1492, well, Spain discovered uh, America, the ocean blue, or whatever. I can't remember the poem. <laughs> but 14, that's what we know Spain for, 1492, discovering America. But in 1492, Spain was also um, reconquered for under Christianity. Uh, the, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella had reconquered, and they viewed the conquest not as a military victory, but as a religious victory. One uh, in which the cross of Christ stood out over and above uh, Islam. In, in Spain would be a Christian country. And Ferdinand and Isabella, they themselves were drawn very much to contemplative prayer and encouraged it throughout their kingdom. But here is the problem. There was not good, solid teaching. The sacred doctrine of the faith was not well known among many of the Spanish. When you're a persecuted church, you don't always have the luxury of exploring questions very deeply. And so your, your knowledge of the faith is limited because you don't have time to explore great questions and think about the connection between things. Well, when we do not take time to reflect with our reason on the truths of the faith, sometimes we can make connections that are fanciful. Uh, connections in our imagination that maybe help a little bit, but they're not really rooted in the truth of our faith. They appeal to our imagination. They appeal to our imagination. So, so there, there are, and there always have been, a lot of people who live their prayer life. Sometimes they live their prayer life, though, with an understanding of their faith that merely appears to their imagination. St. Paul, I believe he says this in his letter to Titus, that there are people who live uh, subject to the kind of the winds of heresy and the whims of myth, you know. And, and what is a myth? A myth is, a, is an understanding of the faith that appeals to our imagination. Pope Benedict says the reason why it's not good enough for us to live our prayer life out of a myth because somebody could say, well, what's the matter with a myth? You know, Hinduism, if you look at it, Hinduism is a, a religion of myth. All kinds of different myths to get you to pray. The purpose, the purpose of the myth is functional. It's to help you get to pray. We don't, uh, why isn't that good enough for Christianity? Some Hindu scholars say, you take your myth too seriously. You believe it's true. And we do. <laughs> But why do we need the truth for Christian prayer? Why is the myth not enough? Well, when you live your life by a myth, when you pray by a myth, you make yourself subject to things that are not true. And human dignity is such that it is owed the truth, even when we pray. Human dignity is such that it is owed the truth. Dignity, to be able to stand firm for who you are, to remember who you are, your dignity, your sense of self-worth. A lot of Catholics today are in the same place the Beatas were in 16th century Spain. They had bought a lot of myths, and in the myths, they lost their dignity. You know, right now, uh, in, uh, it's, it, it's a horrible thing that's going on all over the United States 
and even in the Archdiocese of Denver, more and more young people are not getting married, they're living together instead. Uh, they've, they lit, their, their decision to do this is in the, in the uh, realm of a myth, and by a myth I mean something that appeals to their imagination. And what is the myth? The myth, of, the myth of kind of a myth of romantic love that you don't need to make a commitment to each other because you're in love with each other instead. That's a myth. Instead. Yeah, you don't need to make a commitment because you're in love with each other instead. So the, do you see, romantic love is a great gift. It's a beautiful gift. It's a gift from God. To have the gift of romantic love, you are becoming godlike and in the in romantic love has the form of a gift doesn't it i mean one day you see someone they're normal and the next day all of a sudden they're not normal <laughs> the, the greeks the greeks saw this and they they were the greeks saw this the philosophers the greek philosophers were looking at this and they're going they're, they're going this must be a form of insanity <laughs> And, and, and if you've fallen in love, you know that, that movement of insanity. You do things you would otherwise never rationally do. You know? <laughs> the, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, he writes about this movement of Eros, this initial experience of Eros, and he says, we, uh, uh, this movement, what it, the movement is you want to be so occupied, you want to be so united with the other person they, they mean so much that you forget everything else. And he said this, he said, Eros, when it is disciplined to agape, agape is that love that is sacrificial, that gives for the sake of love, for the other. Eros, when it is disciplined towards agape, becomes more and more godlike, because in God, Eros and agape are one. And when Eros and agape become one in our lives, we become like God. Jesus, the pathway to Jesus, when we gaze on Jesus, we gaze on someone who is madly in love with us. He's so in love with us that he gave up all his divinity, didn't deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather emptied himself, becoming like us in all things, took on, taking on the form of a slave, he, he did this for you because he loves you. He wanted to break through and enter into your world. And the only way he could enter into this world by, was by completely humbling himself of the greatness of who he was. And he did it all the way to his death. He humbled himself unto death, death on a cross. It's from the book of Philippians, I believe, chapter 2. The... Um, this love of Jesus, the, the truth of Jesus. Jesus, what is, who is Jesus? Jesus is the word of the Father. What do we mean by truth? Truth is when what's in our minds and hearts corresponds with reality. When we live our life by imagination and myth, what's in our imaginations is not usually the same as what's in reality. When you first fall in love, you're subject to all kinds of imagination and myths about the other person and about yourself. But if you discipline your love towards sacrifice, you discipline yourself to really 
reach out and enter into the heart of the other person and love them for who they really are. Your eros becomes agape. You are ordering that movement of eros towards the truth. Jesus ordered himself to the truth that's in our hearts. He is the word of the Father. So the Father from eternity has spoken the word. What is a word? A word, any word, is supposed to be a vehicle that tells us the truth, that allows our minds and our hearts to know what really is out there. If Jesus is the word of the Father, it means he is the word of truth, the vehicle by which we know the, the truth, the reality of the Father's love for us. He is the word spoken to you. All good prayer and spirituality is rooted in the word, the word of the Father. The words of sacred scripture, the reason for the words of sacred scripture, the reason why we study the words, we Lexio Divina, is so that we can know the word of the Father. The words of sacred scripture give us the word of the Father. They reflect, and we're going to see this in St. John of the Cross in just a minute. I'm trying to give you a reason. The Beatas didn't know this. They didn't know that in order for us to receive and welcome the word, the word became flesh. And when the word became flesh, it means the word went, entered into all of human experience, purifying it, raising it up, and even raising up our reason so that our reason could actually know the truth, so that our reason would not be subject to ignorance. When the word became flesh through his sacred humanity, we are able to know the truth about the love of God. The poor Beatas didn't know this. And so, and so in regards to sacred humanity, our sacred humanity, they, uh, the humanity of Jesus, they viewed humanity as something that you either escaped from or tried to surmount over power. That's not the Christian way. We don't try to escape our humanity, and we do not try to surmount our humanity. Christians stand with Jesus. We accept our humanity, and we offer it to the Father. We do this every time we go to Mass. We get to the, the threshold of the Eucharistic canon. After the readings, what do we see? That little dialogue, do you remember? Lift up your hearts. It is right to give thanks and praise. Uh, it is right and just. We lift up our hearts to the Lord. What heart do you lift up? Your human heart. You take your human heart and you give it to Jesus. And Jesus binds it to himself. To his heart, he binds your heart to his heart. When we get to that part of the Mass, he binds his heart to your heart, and he offers that to the Father. That's the truth of our faith. It's a heart to heart. From our hearts to Jesus, from Jesus' heart to the Father. And the Father, through Jesus, we are bound to him in love. That's the truth. If that's the truth, then... That means that our humanity is exactly what we're, we don't need to surmount our humanity, kind of try to get over it, or escape from it, try to pretend that it's not there. 
What does that mean even more particularly? Even more particularly when we go to prayer, that means some of the things that that you experience. One of the things that you experience in prayer all the time is your inadequacy. Your inadequacy. It hurts. You fall short. Sometimes in prayer, one of the things that you might experience is loneliness. Severe loneliness. You feel so alone. It's overbearing. Sometimes in prayer, um, you, uh, you also feel movements of, of anger and fear. And all these other things seem to upset you. Upset you. In, in genuine Christian prayer, rather than pretend that you're not angry or you're not fearful, rather than pretending that you don't feel lonely or that uh, you don't feel inadequate, Christian prayer looks at these things and says, yes, this is part of my humanity. This is my misery. Lord God, I humbly present you my heart with all this misery in it. It is all I have to offer you. It is who I am. And Jesus takes that misery and he includes it, he embraces it to his sacred humanity. Because none of those things that I just listed, none of those things do we ever suffer alone. Jesus knows your anger and your fear. He knows your loneliness and your sorrow. He knows your heartbreaks and your disappointments and your frustrations. And he embraces all of those things to his heart. Sister Faustina Kowalska, in a moment of prayer, said, Jesus, tell me, I want to give you everything. What can I give you? And Jesus said, give me your misery. Everything else is a gift from me. The only thing that really belongs to you is your misery. And I want that, so give me that. That is so much in the line of, of, of Carmelite prayer. Carmelite prayer, you just offer the truth of who you are. The Beatas, they were about offering, uh, about surmounting our humanity or escaping from it. So some of them, when you try to um, surmount or escape our, our humanity, you, if you, you, know, you try to get beyond, you're going to fight beyond, I'm going to fight beyond my weakness, and I'm going to prove to God I'm strong. Well, whenever you do that, you incline yourself to severe moral failure. <laughs> You're an accident waiting to happen. It Christian life just doesn't work that way. The only virtue we have is the virtue Jesus gives us. Does that mean we don't try? Yes, we try, but we're humble about our effort. And that, Jesus, I'm trying as hard as I can, but I yelled at the kids again. <laughs> you know, Jesus, I'm trying as hard as I can, but I'm losing my peace while I'm driving on I-70. <laughs> Jesus, I really am trying to uh, pray for this person at work. I really want to love them, but um, uh, I put the dart board up again. You know? <laughs> you know, you see these kind of petty failures all the time, and they can be discouraging. They discourage Teresa of Avila because in the first part of her life, influenced by the Beatas, she thought that you needed to surmount, fight beyond your humanity, or that prayer was an escape from it. And the more she pray prayed, the more she confronted her humanity. Prayer wasn't helping her escape it. It kept on making her face it. And she couldn't get beyond it. So what do we do with this broken humanity? What do we do with it? 
That's what discouraged her. And I think that's what discourages us in prayer. The Beatas, incidentally, the Inquisitors tried to deal with them, and Melchor Cano was one of the Inquisitors who did. And one of the things the Inquisitors saw was that all the Beatas spent a lot of time in prayer, but they didn't know the, the faith. And, so, and, and, uh, and some of them were ended up deeply involved with uh, forms of witchcraft. Uh, think about it today. There's a lot of Catholics who have gotten involved with with thing with witchcraft, uh, uh, I can't. I don't know how they pronounce it. It's either Riki or Raiki. That's witchcraft. It's witchcraft. It was Japanese witches in the 19th century invented that, and and now it's in our retreat centers and religious communities are practicing it. And sad. That's not our tradition. But but the communities that have invited them in, they're making the same mistakes of the, as the beatas of of the 16th century. The inquisitors saw this and they. And they assumed that the reason why they were, these people were inclined to all these practices that appealed to the imagination but were not rooted in truth, the reason why was they're spending too much time in prayer. So they would say, go to Mass, learn your, your catechism, and go to confession and say your rosary out loud, but other than that, don't pray. You know, and now you can maybe understand why John of the Cross will be is persecuted. You can understand why Teresa of Avila, when you read her life, if you read La Vida de Teresa of Avila, you will see she's afraid of mental prayer at different times. And the reason why is because of what's happened in their culture. Very, very pious people made awful mistakes, and they assumed that it was because people were spending too much time in prayer. But the real reason wasn't that they were spending too much time in prayer. The real reason was they didn't know their faith. They didn't know the truth. Prayer needs the truth. When Teresa of Avila is walking up those stairs and sees the face of Jesus, the face of the suffering servant, the face of a man despised and rejected and misunderstood and hated, and she sees that, and she sees him looking at her in love. She has a double realization. The first realization is that Jesus bore all that scourging and insult because of her own sinfulness. He, he suffered all of that to rescue her from her sins. And the scourging that he received was the fruit of her own coldness towards God, her own indifference. The second thing that she saw as she went up those stairs and saw the face of Jesus was in the face of all her misery and brokenness and sinfulness, the truth was Jesus loved her. The truth was Jesus wanted her to know him. The truth was Jesus understood her. The truth was her failures, her inadequacies, the broken humanity was not too much for Jesus. The mercy of Jesus was greater than her misery. Her misery could be held in the mercy of Jesus because the mercy of Jesus was more powerful, more deeper, more true. The mercy that Jesus revealed in his face to her was the deepest truth of her life. This is, um, this is what the greatness of contemplative prayer. I mentioned her father. I, I should return to that story. Um, her father uh, 
was interested in what Teresa of Avila was saying about prayer. And, and even though he didn't like the idea that she first went into the incarnation, um, after she was religious for a little while, he was drawn to mental prayer. And so he would come and talk to his daughter about prayer. And his daughter would give, give her father all the latest stuff from the great spiritual writers of the time. And it was an incredible time. There were all kinds of saints. Saint Ignatius of Loyola was preaching. He was a penitent pilgrim at the time. Uh, at this time, we had John of Avila. John of Avila is not the same as John of the Cross. John of Avila was a priest who was going to become a lawyer, felt God call him to the priesthood, but before he became a priest, he spent literally years in solitude begging God to make him a good priest. And, then, and he helped lead Spain into a kind of mental prayer contemplation infused with what? Sacred doctrine, the truth. And the way, way John of, the, uh, of Avila formed himself in sacred doctrine was he memorized the Bible. Saint Ignatius, uh, when John of Avila was, was dying, Saint Ignatius uh, told his, the Jesuits to take good care of him. He said, we cannot let John of Avila die. We cannot let him die. If he dies, we will lose part of the sacred scriptures because he, he knew them so well. They formed his prayer. Uh, Saint uh, Peter of Al uh, Alcantara was a, a, a Franciscan who uh, very much, uh, in fact, prayed with uh, John of Avila up in the mountains of Spain. Uh, this, this was going on when Teresa was before her conversion. These great saints were, were gathered together, and there were many others uh, that they, they were discovering that mental prayer with sacred doctrine led to holiness. The inquisitors, though, couldn't know that, and Teresa of Avila needed to deal with this myth. But when she saw Jesus, his, his face at that moment, the way her prayer sustained itself and the way she overcame her tendency to want to run away from her humanity or, uh, or try to surmount it, the, the way the Lord overcame that in her, actually, was he gave her a devotion to his humanity, to his sacred humanity crucified for her sake. A devotion that helped her understand that all her misery and all the misery of Jesus were united together so that she never suffered alone. And no matter what she did, Jesus never rejected her. His love was greater than her sin. So this began to give her confidence in the spiritual life. Um, there is more on Teresa of Avila, uh, but I'm going to have to move on to the, uh, uh, the, the next. Well, let me just tell this last story about Teresa of Avila. <laughs> uh, if you read the life, if you read, uh, what she does is she talks about what mystical prayer is. Uh, actually, she talks about mystical theology. Mystical theology means the same thing as I do when I say mystical wisdom. And she says mystical theology is a wisdom of the presence of Christ. When you are aware of the presence of Christ in you, that is a wisdom uh, that is in your heart. It's not a conceptual wisdom. People, I know people who have this wisdom very deeply, and they find it very hard to talk about their faith. Uh, some of our seminarians, it's really beautiful to see, they have 
a deep awareness of the presence of Christ and they want to be able to express it and they can't find the words. You know, well, uh, that that's another to be able to express it. We call that theology or scientific theology, and that's important because it allows us to share what's going on in our hearts with each other. But if you do not have that wisdom of heart, that that um, uh, mystical theology in your heart, that awareness, you don't have anything to say. So I'm always glad when the seminarian has the mystical wisdom and doesn't know how to say it. I always get worried when I hear people do theology, uh, but they're not really saying anything. They don't have that awareness, living awareness of Christ's presence. So um, Teresa Valla says, now how do we help this grow? And she gives us two methods. And so I wanted to, we had the question about methods. What, what was Teresa Valla's methods? Well, the, uh, the first method that she liked to do was um, she, would, she would picture herself in different scenes of the scriptures, and one scene in particular. Now, this, this should sound familiar to those of you who've uh, gone through any kind of spirituality by St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius loved to do the same thing, too. He loved to picture himself in a Bible verse, uh, a passage from the, the gospel, like, oh, uh, when Jesus uh, uh, was cooking fish on the seashore after the resurrection, and, uh, and the disciples, came, Peter throws on his robes and runs out to Jesus in the water. <laughs> kind of goes nuts. And, and, you know, and what would you, do you want to picture yourself in the boat or do you want to picture yourself as Peter? Uh, do you want to picture overhearing what Jesus is telling Peter uh, while he's feeding us the fish? Where do you want to be in that? When you do that kind of exercise, uh, technically, that's called composition of place. Composition of place. And you can use your imagination to put yourself in the scriptures. Now, what's important about that is not that you, uh, uh, some people get into smelling the smells and hearing the water and feeling the sea breeze and that kind of thing. That's a wonderful thing to do. There's nothing wrong with it. But the point of the exercise isn't to get caught up in that. The point of the exercise is to put yourself in the scripture verse so that you can hear the truth spoken to you personally. So that you're personally implicated with the truth that's being spoken. That's, and this is what Teresa of Avila would do. The way she liked to do it, her favorite scripture passage to reflect on, she says, was the Garden of Gethsemane. And she would reflect on it every night before she went to sleep. She would spend one hour with the Lord before she went to sleep, imagining him there in Gethsemane and praying at his side. So it's a beautiful meditation. You know, you get to think about the Eucharist and all. You can talk to Jesus about all his miracles that he did up to that moment. You can talk to Jesus um, uh, about um, his abandonment to the Father. You know, you're implicated in that moment with Jesus. The, the movements of his heart, the movements of fear, and, uh, and the movements of, of love become your movements because you're there in the garden with him. So this was what Teresa of Avila liked to do every night before she went to bed. And she did it even before her conversion, incidentally, uh, when she said she wasn't praying. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to think about. Um, 
The other thing that she said that we could do, besides thinking about the life of Jesus, so when you think about the Garden of Gethsemane, you're thinking about the life of Jesus. The other thing that you can do is you can ponder your own life and you can question yourself about your memories. If you want a great example of this, you can read Augustine's Confessions, really the first ten book of books or nine books of the Confessions. St. Augustine shares with you memories from his heart. He confesses, in confessing his memories, he confesses his misery, things that he's done wrong, that where he wasn't attentive to God. But even more, when he's confessing his memories to you, when he shares his memories with you, he confesses the presence of God that was there with him. And similarly, we can do this in our prayer. I, uh, uh, right about the time that Trees of Avila encountered Jesus at the, on those steps uh, in the statue. Right about the same time, she read the Confessions of St. Augustine and had the whole grace renewed for her again. And, and, and she would have read those first nine books of the Confessions. She would have read about St. Augustine's experience in the garden where Jesus told him to pick up and read. Do you, you know the story? Uh, um, <clears throat> Up until that time of his life, St. Augustine was not particularly Christian. He was a catechumen from the time he was a child, but he wasn't particularly Christian. And one of his biggest hang-ups about Christianity was the demands to be chaste. And so one of his prayers was, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> and uh, and he's a very contemporary person. He had a... He had a, he had a, a, a he had a, a concubine that he lived with, and they had a child out of wed wedlock. And, um, and at the same time, he'd heard about the gospel of Christ. He wanted to be converted. He believed in the truth of the gospel. He believed it was true. He came to know, know it was true. But he was so afraid to let go of his life. Will I be able to live? Will I be able to be constant, faithful to the gospel of Christ if if I have to give up sex. And, and and so this was tormented him. And he was in prayer and he was tormenting over this question in his prayer. And he heard a voice say, pick up and read. And he understood it to mean, pick up the scriptures and read. And he opened up to Romans chapter 13 and he read the words, uh, not in carousing and drunkenness, instead of make no, no provisions for, for nature and nature's way. He read those words, and he, he said the light of God's confidence flooded his heart. And Teresa of Avila connected that experience with her own experience that she had before the statue when she begged him in tears to give her the grace not ever to be unfaithful to him in prayer. And the light of God's confidence had flooded her heart. And she said, when I read these words from St. Augustine, that grace I had in front of the statue was renewed and that's one of the reasons why Teresa of Avila will say, if you, want to, if you want to enter into mental prayer, if you want this mystical wisdom, search your memories, and in your memories, especially the most painful ones, ask Jesus, where were you present in this? That argument with your spouse, or your son or daughter, or, or, um, uh, or your parents, that was so harsh, uh, where you were so hurt, that 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 thing that happened in your life where you felt completely abandoned 
where you felt like a complete failure, that moment, don't be afraid of that moment. Don't try to escape that moment. Don't try to surmount that moment. Go into that moment and ask Jesus, Jesus, where were you? Jesus, where were you? And you will hear, as you search those memories, his voice speak to you, not with human language, but with language of the heart. He will say, I have never abandoned you. I was with you through it all. I was with you through it all. That, when you do that, I believe uh, people talk about healing memories, and I believe there's nothing more wonderful than that healing voice of Jesus. Because when you hear that healing voice of Jesus, you can let go of bitter judgments. You can let go of rash judgments. You can let go of places in your life that you lived in the myth of a bad judgment. When you make a bad judgment, you live in a myth. And until you let go of the bad judgment, you're subject to the myth. But when you hear the voice of Jesus, the voice of the truth, the truth will set you free. And this is mystical wisdom. This is the wisdom that Teresa of Avila shares. with. When you know this, you're seeing the face of Jesus. When you're hearing that voice speak in your heart about your own memories, you're hearing the voice, you're seeing the face of Jesus. Um, how are we doing? We're, um, I, okay, you're still awake. <laughs> Let me, I want to give you one more method. She goes on, actually, after she describes the, this method and she talks about what mystical theology is, she goes on from there to talk about four degrees of prayer. Uh, 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 drawing water from the well, that's more ascetical kinds of prayer. And then the kind of prayer which feels like a rainfall, a gentle rainfall that waters the garden. And what is the garden that she's talking about? The garden she's talking about is our heart, the place where we meet Jesus. And she says, as we practice these practices, as we think about the life of Jesus, as we think about our memories with compunction and repentance, it's, it's repentance when you do this with your memories. Because before, you assumed that God wasn't there. You assume that God wasn't taking care of you. But when you hear Jesus speak to you in the middle of that painful memory, you can let go of that false judgment. And when you let go of a false judgment, what are you doing? You are rethinking, you are thinking again. That's exactly what repentance is. Repentance, repentari. Pentari means to think. Repentari means to think again. You are letting go of your false judgments so that you can think with the mind of Christ about your life. When you think about your life with the mind of Christ, you know the truth about who you are. This is mystical prayer. Um, uh, Teresa of Avila, her description after that period, uh, after describing this, of the four kinds of water that comes down. It's first you're drawing water from the well. It means you're working so hard at meditation, you seem to be doing all the work and you wonder where Jesus is. In the beginning, meditation's a little bit like that because you don't know the stories of the scriptures. You, um, you don't really understand the Bible as well as you can. You don't know how to do the rosary because it's so many prayers to say and so little time to do them all, you know. Um, 
That the beginning of prayer is like drawing water out of a well. But as you get practice and good, it's like uh, God develops a, uh, a crank system so the water comes up easier and easier. And then he develops a canal system in your soul and then he sends these rain showers. And, and, and so do you see uh, our efforts to pray, our efforts become easier and easier in prayers. The hardest part of prayer is in the beginning. And, uh, but, it, uh, but after you've begun, it becomes easier. Then he talks about, she ta also describes another thing that happens. She talks about a spark, a small, um, a small tongue of flame, and a blazing fire that consumes your heart. And when she's describing the parts of prayer, our awareness of God that is a spark, a tongue of fire, or a blazing bonfire, what she's describing is this unfolding presence of God not by our efforts, but by something powerful God is doing inside us. That's what we call mystical prayer for those. And, and here's the wildest thing. She was experiencing very uh, advanced levels of mystical prayer even while her life was still a shipwreck. Uh, uh, if you go on to read the life after her, the four kinds of prayer, you'll see that she's still attached to sin. And she's so attached to sin that her, her spiritual director, her spiritual friends, her confessors are all telling her, there is no way you can be having this kind of prayer and leading this kind of life. And it, it disturbed her too. It almost discouraged her again. But she went and she, she, she went and talked to the Jesuits. And the Jesuits were some of the pioneers of mystical prayer at the time, pioneers of mental prayer. And, and she heard the preaching of Francis Borgia, which reassured her about the love of God. And then there was a Jesuit confessor, a, a spiritual director, a Father Rodriguez. And Father Rodriguez told her, you know what your problem is? Your problem isn't that you're praying too much. Your problem is that you're not confident enough in the Lord. So here's what I want you to do. Next time it's time for prayer, I want you to sing out loud the Vene Creator Spiritus and trust God. Make it an act of trust in him and, and, and present to him your desire to be free of sin and see what he does. This isn't your effort. It's about what God is going to do inside you. So just sing this with faith. So that's what, you know, the Vene Creator Spiritus, don't you? You know, uh, Come Holy Ghost, Creator blessed, and in our hearts take up your rest. Come with thy grace and heavenly aid, and fill the hearts which thou hast made. To fill the hearts which thou hast made. And so she prayed that prayer from her heart. She sang it out loud. And uh, you've heard the description of uh, rapture, where your heart is pierced by, um, uh, uh, pierced with love. She goes on to describe that grace, and she said, Once my heart was pierced with the love of God, I never had a, a sinful attachment again. I was freed. Our prayer, the mystery of our religion, is great. 
It's powerful. The truth, when it pierces our heart, can free us from all kinds of, of false judgments and bad attachments and things that are holding us back. The truth sets us free. Let me uh, give you, I, um, I know that I've been talking for a little while and I, I appreciate so much your patience, but let me do the second part of this presentation. I'll try to do it in a little bit briefer um, for you. This, in this part of the presentation, I want to talk about one more method in prayer. So the first method that I talked about was the method of pondering the presence of Jesus in the scripture composition of place. Second method, I like to call it healing of memories, but other people use that term, so you can call it whatever you want. I don't care what you call it. But the, that, um, that pondering over, reflecting over your life, and submitting every memory to Jesus, asking him where he's present in your memory. And um, uh, I don't know what you call that, but it's, uh, um, I, I think it's a kind of healing of memories that takes place. The third the third kind of method that I, I want to give you comes from St. John of the Cross. And remember what I said about methods. All these methods, they are secondary to the reality. What is the reality? Jesus is coming to you. Jesus loves you more than you love him. And any frail effort that you make, he's already moved heaven and earth so that you might have the freedom to make that effort. So our prayer isn't about our, our achievements. Our prayer is about what God is doing for us right now, what he's accomplishing in us by the Holy Spirit. And all we're doing is we're just saying yes to that. We're saying yes to the work that God has begun in us. So when, you, when I talk about these methods, what are these methods for? These methods merely surrender our hearts to the Lord. That's all they're there for. And so if one method works for a while and then stops working, go to the next method. If that method stops working for a while, you should talk to your spiritual director. But sometimes there becomes a point where you let go of methods altogether. And you just let the Lord draw you into silence. You just spend time in silence before the Lord. I'll return to that before I finish this reflection, this last kind of prayer. But let me give you one more kind of method that John, we find in the writings of John of the Cross, spiritual canticle. I've already described how John of the Cross repeated the, the poem Canticle of Canticles from the scriptures to himself over and over again, and that helped him write his poem when he was finally given pen and paper. He wrote out his poem, The Spiritual Canticle, which kind of follows the movements of, of the scripture. Uh, the scripture takes you through different seasons of love. And it starts with love in its earliest stage. I talked about eros uh, earlier in our presentation. With, uh, in the scriptures, we start with the, um, the Hebrew word dodim. Dodim, dodim uh, is immature love. That's what it literally means in Hebrew. It's, it's like eros when you first fall in love. Uh, uh, you're just outside of yourself in love, you know. Um, uh, uh, for the Hebrews, that never carried the irrational connotations that it did for the Greeks, because the Hebrews were never as cerebral as the Greeks. The Hebrews were people of the earth. The Greeks were writing books, you know. But but um, and so they weren't worried about the fact that you seem to lose your mind in love. But they they were aware that in the beginning of love, 
that first movement of love had a little bit of an anxious search to it. John of the Cross picks this up in his poem. And by the end of the scriptures, the love language changes. It no longer uses the vocabulary of dodim. Instead, the Hebrew word that you find predominant at the end of the poem is the word in Hebrew, ahaba, ahaba. Ahaba means a love that is proven and true, a love that does not change. In the Canticle of Canticles, when it says, his banner over me is love, his banner over me is ahaba, a love proven and true. That is his pledge to me. He will never let me go. At the end of the Canticle of Canticles, when it says, um, uh, a love stronger than death, it is ahaba stronger than death. Perfect, uh, deep waters and floods and torrents and storms cannot quench this love. It is more deep and more powerful than all the forces of the world is what's being said in that passage. John of the Cross picks this up in this poem, and his poem follows the same progression, a progression from an anxious search to a love that is proven and true that nothing can destroy, no height, no depth, nothing in, this, uh, in the heavens above or in the earth below can separate us from this love of God. It is so powerful. And what he's proposing then is that our, devo our devotion in prayer begins kind of tentative, but where God wants to take it is into a place where it cannot be moved. And this is the other thing that goes on in, his po in both the poem uh, uh, St. John of the Cross writes and the scriptures. By the time you get done with the scriptures and the poem at the end, this soul, um, the love that is celebrated, that is fruitful, and that is so strong, it is strong not because the enemies have disappeared and they're not there. In both the poem and in John of the Cross's work, the enemies are marching all around you. They're trying to threaten you, but they can't touch you. Your heart is so rooted and protected in love that even in the face of your enemies, as we saw with Psalm 23, even in the face of your enemies, the Lord has prepared a banquet for you. Your cup overflows, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the movement of the poem. This is the movement of the sacred scriptures. It's the movement that John of the Cross wants us to know. How do you advance on the movement? Well, the first stage of the game is the, and this, I invite you, you've been so patient, uh, but for those of you who do not, have not really begun a life of prayer, habitual life of prayer, you pray every once in a while when you need to, but the idea of praying every day kind of just doesn't sound all that exciting. You know, I, um, uh, uh, I'd rather watch reruns of Monk, it goes through your mind. <laughs> um, um, the, um, what I recommend, if you find yourself in that stage where you feel kind of repulsed by prayer, but at the same time you know that you ought to pray, you know you ought to have a devotion that you do not have, the beginning then of the spiritual life that John of the Cross describes uh, implies in the very beginning of his poem, The Spiritual Canticle, is that you ask for Jesus for the gift of being awakened to love. The gift of being awakened to love. If you do not love Jesus the way you ought to love him, beg him like a beggar. Jesus, I don't love you the way I ought to. 
I know I should be drawn to prayer. I know I should be reverent in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I know I should want to go to Mass. I know I should want to go to Confession. I know I should want to hear the Gospel, but I don't. I know I should want to be able to hold the crucifix and look at it and allow my heart to be pierced by your love, but I don't want that. Have mercy on me, Jesus. I believe in you, but I don't believe in you enough. I love you, but I don't love you enough. Have mercy on me. Those who will pray like that, God will give the gift of spiritual awakening. And once you have the gift of spiritual awakening, then you can understand the poem of the spiritual canticle. The poem begins almost right after the spiritual awakening. And, and John of the Cross's poem kind of presumes an image from the scripture poem. So let me give you the image of the scripture poem. In the scripture poem, one of the seasons of love, the bridegroom comes for his beloved in the middle of the night. And, he, and she peers at him. He's staring at her through the lattices of the back door of the house. He's not supposed to be there. He's kind of sneaking in. A Romeo and Juliet moment, right? And so he calls out to her. She sees him. But what is she doing? She's reclining on her bed, kind of resting, kind of like saying, come on in, Jesus, I'm waiting for you. And then she realizes he can't get through the door because the door is locked. Think about the passage from the book of Revelations. I stand at the door and knock. He, he the bridegroom of our souls, stands at, at the door waiting for us to open. And we're sitting on our beds looking at him saying, well, come on in, Jesus. And the door's locked. That's, that's um, uh, the soul that's spiritually awake is so moved by the fact that Jesus loves it that it's sluggish. The beginning of the spiritual life, one of the things that we need to overcome is our sluggishness towards, towards the Lord. And so the, the next line of the poem is, or the, the, the next image is, the, the bride runs to the, the door realizing it's locked, but her hands are wet with myrrh. She was really excited about his coming, so she covered herself with myrrh. Her hands are so soaked with myrrh oil, she can't unlock the bolt. It's slipping through her hands. And by the time she unlocks it and she opens it, the bridegroom's run off into the night. And so the poem of St. John of the Cross starts with the cry of the bride, which is the cry of our hearts. Where have you hidden? Where have you hidden? Those of you who have begun to pray and you felt the first movement of Jesus, and you got up, and you wanted to welcome him in, into your heart, but you couldn't get the door unlocked, and his presence seems to vanish before you, and he's disappeared into the darkness. John of the Cross would call that a dark night, a dark night of the senses, really, at the beginning there. You call out to your bridegroom, where have you hidden? Where have you gone and left me moaning like this? That's the beginning of the poem. And so this, the poem goes on just as the scriptures go on. The bride runs into the darkness looking for her bridegroom. And she runs into messengers and she runs into enemies. She runs into distractions. Prayer, much more than the methods that I've given you right now, prayer is about seeking Jesus. Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity said, I used to love to withdraw into silence as a young girl 
love to withdraw into silence and search for the presence of Jesus in my soul. And so you're on a search. In the beginning of prayer, it's a search. Where is Jesus in this memory? Where is Jesus in this distraction? Where is Jesus in this problem over here? Where is he? You're looking, you're searching. Where is he in the scripture word that I just heard at Mass? Or in my little pamphlet, the Magnificat, do many of you get that? And you see some inspirational reading. Where is Jesus in this? You're searching for him. And, uh, and as you search for him, he's leading you. The reason why he took off wasn't because he wanted to abandon you, but he wanted to take you to a deeper place of encounter, a more protected place of encounter. And so he leads you through the darkness, you chase him, he sends messengers to encourage you, but there's enemies you need to face. Why do you need to face enemies? Because the bridegroom wants the love of his bride to be strong and proven and faithful, just like his is. You see, friends, one of the notes of friendships is friend, friends want to be like each other. And Jesus wants us to be able to love with the invincible love that he has for us. He wants us to be able to love him with that invincible love and all those he's entrusted to us. So in order to help us grow that kind of love in our hearts, he sends obstacles, enemies, to test our love. It's through our love being tested that our love becomes strong like his. So that what are... Three, um, three kinds of enemies as you are drawn into silence, three kinds of enemies that you will experience in prayer. He describes them as beasts. He describes them as, um, or wild beasts. He describes them as uh, thugs or uh, strong men. And he describes them as frontiers. So let me start with each one of the Wild beasts is an image he uses. These wild beasts are uh, uh, the powers of this world. The cultural, political, military, entertainment powers of this world. And these entertainment powers, these cultural powers, these economic powers of this world are frightened to death of you, just like a wild animal. I like to tell a story. Once I was, I was hunting elk. Don't worry for those of you who don't like hunting. I, uh, the elk were all very safe while I was hunting them. So I I was tracking down, I found these elk tracks. I thought, oh, this is really neat. And so I'm tracking down the elk, you know, going through the woods. Spent all day going through the woods, never found the elk. But at a certain stage, it's getting to be sunset. I look and I see right on top of the elk footprint, I see a big cat footprint. And I go, wow, uh, that cat footprint looks very fresh. Like, you know, maybe a few hours ago, you know, and I uh, 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 a print only a few hours old. This this is what what are, I you know I wish I could take a cast of it. You know, this went through my mind. And then I rounded a corner, and I had cornered a lynx. And I'd never even seen a lynx before. Uh, I well, I'd seen and heard what they look like, and I heard that they might be in the area. So so so, but I recognized this was a lynx, and its hair was straight up on its back and its teeth were out, and it was making funny noises. <laughs> um, you know, I had my rifle. It was shaking like this. 
And I had two fears that went through me at the same time. The, the, the first fear, I mean, the most existential fear was, you know, I might get eaten. And, you know, and so what am I going to do? And the second fear that went through my mind at, at, in that moment was, you know, I, I can't shoot it because, you know, I can read the headlines, uh, you know, Catholic theologian kills endangered species, you know. <laughs> so I was completely torn by fear. I didn't know what to do. Uh, the the good news about that, uh, uh, when you find the uh, when the world causes you to be afraid, don't do what I did with the cat. Okay, the the um, uh, I I was there. I didn't know what to do. The the cat at a certain stage of the game decided that I was not a threat. <laughs> it it marched right past me, like within within two feet. It walked right past me. And as it walked past me, it looked over its shoulder with this look of utter contempt. Like, I never want to see you here again. <laughs> so that was the last time I ever went hunting. And, um, but um, the point of the story is this. The world tries to make you afraid to intimidate you just like they did with Archbishop Charles, because the world is afraid of you. Do not be afraid of the world. Do not be afraid of what people think. Do not be afraid to standing up to what is popular. Do not be afraid of the truth. The world is more afraid of you. And John of the Cross says, if you stand up to the, the wild beasts, uh, they go away. They go away because they're more afraid of you than you are of them. But their tactic is to try to scare you, to discourage you, to make you despondent. The second uh, obstacle to prayer that we face, and so when you're praying, your life begins to change, and you live your life differently, and people around you will say, uh, will try to intimidate you not to be holy, not to love the way you're loving. And so what this means is when that happens, you can't let yourself be afraid of that. You can't let yourself be afraid of being thought of as weird. You're not weird if you're loved by God. The rest of the world is weird because it doesn't know the love of God. You're sane. You're sane. Only the love of God can make you sane. The, um, the, the second enemy that you need to deal with are are strongmen. In Spanish, uh, los fuertes it means, translates literally strongmen, but I think it means much more like thug, or like, you know, mafia thug. You know, yo, Vinny, go take care of, you know. And that, that kind of thug. The thug that comes and beats you up. In the life of Antony, written by St. Athanasius, he describes um, experiences where he's actually physically beaten by demons. And, uh, and I tell you the story not to scare you. I actually tell this. He was so beaten that he appeared dead. And his friends found him. He was out in the tombs uh, praying to Jesus in solitude. And the demons came and beat him so bad he looked dead. And so they, the friends came and carried his what appeared to be dead body back into the church. And the whole church gathered around and prayed through the night. And as they prayed through the night, Life was restored into Antony's body. And as they fell asleep, pouring them, their whole selves out in prayer, he rose up and went back out into the desert. Our 
Faith makes us adversaries with every form of irrationality. And there are forms of irrationality that are more than human. If you do not believe that that is the case, that Grosnell trial, Grosnell trial, if you read that, that is demonic. That is not human. That kind of evil is not human. Or if that, if you don't, if that doesn't press your button, look at Auschwitz. What happened in Birkenau and Auschwitz and Dachau was not human. There were other spirits, evil irrationality at work. And Christianity doesn't run from that. It faces it. Like St. Anthony, we go into the desert. And so on our way to Jesus, in order to find the bridegroom, we need to face all kinds of spirits of irrationality. John of the Cross lists three, and I'll just list these really quick so that you can recognize these movements in your prayer. The first is a spirit, yes? This happens in prayer. You torment yourself. With, with self-loathing thoughts. One of the, one of the three spirits, the three spirits that you normally face in prayer are the spirit of fornication, lust. Uh, you also spirit, face the spirit of blasphemy. Blasphemy also tortures us sometimes in prayer, where you want to do unholy things with holy things. We want results so badly, we use God to achieve the results we want. That's blasphemy. And then what you've just described is a very painful and probably the worst of all, the spirit of self-loathing. Well, this spirit of, of this loathsome spirit is probably one of the greatest sick, spiritual sicknesses we have in the church today in our culture. Because just Jesus allowed you to experience that so that you could pray Pray for those who are under the domination of that particular spirit, that spirit of self-hatred, self-loathing. We have an epidemic of young people today who are hurting themselves. That is the spirit of self-loathing. They don't know their dignity. They don't know how loved they are. They feel the pain in their heart, and it's so oppressive. So overwhelming. They're trying to get some kind of relief from it. So they hurt themselves. I'm so thinking that way. I should say over and over again, I am a beloved daughter. I, that's beautiful advice. Your spiritual director was right. When we have the, you can't stop those kind of thoughts from coming. Yeah. It's still there. I can think about it, but I don't get myself so torn up that I go into confession and I almost tremble again. <laughs> yeah. Well, beautiful. And so the the point is, the point is that that when we're under attack, wh whatever spirit it is that's irrational movement, don't worry about the irrational movement. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's already won the victory. Make the sign of the cross. And do it with faith, calling to mind the power of the blood of Jesus over every aspect of our lives. And, and this kind of self-loathing movement. It was terrible. Very good. Was 
So very, very beautiful. And so, so, so these, these thugs, why does God allow us to face these thugs? Why does God, has God allowed the spirit of self-loathing to so infect our culture today? And the reason why is because he wants us to enter into love with him. If he didn't test our love, we would be lost. We wouldn't realize how much we, he, we need him. But by allowing us to be bothered by this kind of irrationality or that kind of irrationality, all of a sudden we realize our poverty. We realize we can't do it by ourselves. We realize that we need Jesus. We need Jesus to reveal the truth about who we are. And so we humble ourselves and we turn to him. We cry out like the psalm did, Psalm 80. Rouse up, O Lord, your might. Let your face shine on us and we shall be saved. So, so this is why the Lord allows these things. He's, he wants you to become great in your love. But the only way you'll come, become great in your love is if you rely on him. So if you follow our crucified master, if you chase him, he's going to lead you into places where you must rely on him alone. We must rely on him. Okay, at the uh, final, the final uh, I've gone over, we'll do the Angelus, I'll let you eat lunch. But let me do the, 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 the final um, spirit, uh, excuse me, the final uh, obstacle. Final obstacle that you need to face is the frontiers. In uh, the spiritual life, um, just like uh, in ancient Spain, the frontier is a very dangerous place. It's where the it's where the thugs hang out and the wild animals are. Okay, what is the what is that for uh, for me and for you? For me and for you, the frontier is our humanity. What we pursue Jesus through the frontiers that we must cross, we cross through and enter deeper and deeper into the to our humanity that Jesus shares with us. And so as we face the thugs and the wild animals, we're also dealing with ourselves. Uh, the limitations of who we are. Romano Guardini wrote a, a book about the virtues of the, uh, of the Christian life. And in this book, one of the virtues he talks about is the virtue of courage. And courage is the virtue by which you accept yourself for who you are before God. These are my limitations, Lord, and you seem to be very comfortable, Lord, making me live in my limitations all the time. And so if you're going to live in my limitations, make me deal with these limitations all the time, if this is where you're content to place me, Jesus, then you're going to have to help me. Because only Jesus can get us through the frontiers of our human existence. Only Jesus can help us deal with our weaknesses. St. Paul taught, was talking about the frontier and the thugs when he talked about, remember the thorn that inflicted his flesh? Do you remember that story? And he prayed to God three times that the thorn that was afflicting him, this thing that was hurting him, this thing that was tormenting him, we don't even know what it was. He just calls it a thorn. In Italian, they have um, an expression, yo own spina. A spina, I have a thorn in my flesh. He prayed three times to Jesus to take it away, and Jesus didn't take it away. 
Instead, he spoke to St. Paul and he disclosed himself to St. Paul. He told St. Paul, my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And what is St. Paul's response? I glory in my weakness because that is where the power of God is made manifest. If you are someone who's in your prayer and in your life struggles with, uh, with, spirit, with lustful thoughts and, and trying to be faithful to those you love, if you're someone who struggles to, um, to abuse your religious practices to get the results you want instead of what God wants, if you're someone who deals with that loathsome spirit, that spirit of self-hatred, Jesus wants to show you his power in your weakness. He wants you to be able to glory in his cross. And if you will say yes to that grace, if you will let the victory of God's mercy into that place of your life, not only will you be saved, but through you, because you were generous with the Lord, and you let the face of the Lord shine on this place of your life, through you, the face of the Lord will shine on the whole world. Because what you're dealing with, other people are dealing with. But the difference between you and many other people is you know the truth. You have a word of hope. You know that you're not abandoned by Jesus and that he loves you. So many of our brothers, sisters in the world today, they do not have that word of hope. They do not know the truth. They do not know freedom. So say yes to the Lord. Welcome him into those difficult, difficult experiences in your prayer. And as you do, you will discover his hope. Now, I spent so long telling you about obstacles to prayer that I didn't get to tell you about the messengers God sends. So I'm going to do that after lunch.